to go back to our uh, study of Second Timothy. Uh, I've looked forward to this. Last Sunday was communion, and so to me, I'm not preaching, and uh, but this is what I've been looking forward to is getting back uh, to teaching you and preaching and proclaiming God's word in Second Timothy. Uh, as we're going to look today in chapter two, uh, we're going to focus verse twenty, go to the end of the chapter, uh, continuing a theme that you have heard now for a few weeks, and Paul's warning to. To Timothy and and some of the difficulties of the church there uh, between false teachers and folks who are causing problems uh, to Timothy being faithful in the word of God. Uh, And so we're going to look at an analogy that he gives to us uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I pray that God will use it for the blessing of his word uh, in your life. And so let's stand together as we read 2 Timothy chapter 2. Beginning with verse 20, reading to the end of the chapter. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but of also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use set apart as holy Useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance. Leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. After being captured by him to do his will. You may be seated. Just in a way of review to get the context. If you read in chapter 2. You have this plea for Timothy to be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Let the grace of God nurture your heart so that you will endure hardship, suffering like a good soldier. And understanding that much of the hardship that that Timothy is going to be facing is within the own body of Ephesus of correcting those who are teaching falsely. Who have gone outside of the gospel and causing problems. But he says in verse 14 and 15 he says these that you're teaching timothy remind them to avoid these things charge them before god not to quarrel about words which ruin the hearers and then he says instead present yourselves to god as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth and so the the plea the idea is worship god by serving the lord to the best of your ability doing so in the context of a false teachers and we learned last week or last um, two weeks ago about this God's foundation and it stands firm and we saw how this birthed out of a, a story of Korah and Moses and and how these people were rebelling against God rebelling against God's leader in Moses and and how Paul piggybacks on that story and that idea and says the solid foundation is still here one God knows those who are his and two, those who name the name of Christ apart from iniquity. So from God's perspective, he knows who are saved. From man's perspective, it becomes evident by their removing away from iniquity. And so he says this to Timothy this as a word of warning. Since it, look, in this church, be careful of this. There are some people who are not removing from iniquity, but for you, do that. And he presents this analogy of a house. And that's a very, it's, it's one we can figure out. We can look at this. He says, in that great house, there's going to be several types of, of vessels, or two types, one for honorable uses and one for dishonorable uses. And so if you can uh, imagine this story today, if you go into a house and you see uh, in the dining room uh, the, the china cabinet, you know, this is the place where they put their their displayed vessels, the, the things that may have been given to them in weddings and other times that you might have a, a light shining on the, the, the shining uh, silver or the crystal that's in a shining cabinet. But imagine that if you're in a house and in the midst of the, the glasses and crystal and the silver was a toilet plunger. 
right in the middle of that. And thinking, what, what, what's, what is this? This is wrong. We don't mix certain vessels in our house. Now, you would understand that there would be a toilet plunger in a house. I mean, that makes perfect sense. It's a great house. And, and so, yeah, but you don't put that in the china cabinet. You know, you put that in some obscure corner where no one has to look at that. All right. And so that's the point that Paul is making here. He says, you know, there is in a great house, there'll be two types of vessels, some for honorable gold and silver. Those are the things you want to display. And then some things, wood and clay. I mean, these are not for honorable, notable purposes, anything that we want to talk about. They're both there. So Timothy, the idea he's saying is in, in a church setting, there, there's going to be vessels of different types. And your main point, the main point here is not for us to say, okay, you are an honorable vessel and you are a dishonorable vessel. That's not the point here. The point is to say, for you who is listening, I don't want to be a dishonorable vessel. I want to separate myself. I would like to be put on display in God's house as something honorable. I don't want to be pushed away in obscure corners. All right? So that's the idea. But this is all done. Remember, 2 Timothy 2.15. This is all done out of worship of God. We want to present ourselves to God. All right? We want to present ourselves as something not needing to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And so I want you to understand that what I'm going to give to you, the, the uh, instructions, the mandates, the commands from Paul here, is done out of a fuel to worship God. Okay? If you don't get that, it's not going to make sense, and you're going to, you're going to twist this. All right? God is great, and he has been good to you who was bad. He has been good to you as a bad person. And that has changed your heart. His Holy Spirit has been placed into you. And that fuels certain things. You understand that? So, what does it fuel? What does it challenge us in? And so, verse 20 has the illustration. In verse 21, he hears the point. He's, he draws the point. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart. So the point in that story is don't hang out with toilet plungers. All right, no. To say, be separate. Be different. Be useful. All right? And so what does this look like? And so he gives us three descriptions in verse 21. This is to be a vessel for honorable use means that you're going to be set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, and ready for every good work. All right? Ready for every good work. And so uh, we see simply, and this is what I would say to you, we separate from teaching devoid of the gospel for the master. Okay? What is it Paul telling us to do? We are to separate ourselves from teaching devoid of the gospel, and we separate ourselves for the master. And so when we look at verse 21, that would be my summary of that, uh, I, that, that scripture. It's, it's not to say that you're just going to be removed from false teachers, because he's going to tell them in just a little bit. He's going to tell Timothy, correct them, instruct them. Teach him. And so he's not just removing himself from, from Philetus and Hymenus who, who were mentioned earlier, but removing himself from the teaching. Now, when we talk about false teaching, we often talk about, well, you know, this is stuff where, where they're, you know, they're going from a different book, like the Quran. We're going to call that a false teaching. We're going to say, well, you know, maybe they added to the book, like uh, uh, the, the Mormons, or, or they twisted the book, and like the Jehovah's Witness. And we, and we often think, okay, that's a false teaching. But interesting, what, what Paul has in mind is not just these... Uh, obvious false teachings but notice what he's saying as you read in the chapter he says in verse 14 don't quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers verse 16 avoid irreverent irreverent babble for which will lead people into more and more godliness verse 18 who swerve from the truth saying the resurrection has already passed and so that's an obvious uh uh false teaching but then he's also in that saying it's it's teaching that is devoid of the gospel. It's irreverent. It's babble. It's 
uh, perhaps maybe slanderous. It's not, it doesn't have the essence of the grace of God for sinners uh, through Jesus Christ as, as our Lord and Savior. And so it is, it's not necessarily bad, but it's bad in that it doesn't have the gospel at its core. And so it becomes devoid of the gospel. Separate yourself from that. Why? Because you want to be set apart from the master. So there's, there's three descriptions of verse 21. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. When we talk about separation, it's not just removing from the bad, is to be set apart for the good. Okay? I, I use this, the, the illustration of the, the toothbrush. Remember this? Um, that is one of the best ways to understand holiness, is that a toothbrush has one primary purpose, and that it's one primary person, right? Hopefully, you have a toothbrush used for you, not someone else. And so one of the worst things that happens is when you come into your, brush your teeth and it's already wet. <laughs> Whoa, why is my toothbrush wet? Uh, and, and so it's already been defiled. So you either got to throw it away or you got to boil it, all right? Um, you, you want it set apart, one purpose. Or, or, you know, you come in and you find a toothbrush and it's got black stuff on it. It's dry, though. <laughs> What's this black stuff? Oh, I, you know, I was using it to clean the tires in the car. No, one purpose, okay? One person, all right? So, holiness. You, got, you have an idea of holiness now? It's to say that your life, your soul, your being is for one purpose. One purpose person okay and so if it's used for anything else it is no longer holy unto the lord and that includes yourself if you use your life for your own self then it's being defiled because you were built meant for god's purposes and so that's the idea we want to be a vessel that's honorable so how do we do that well i'm going to be set apart as holy for the useful to the master of the house ready for every good work so we separate from teaching, devoid of the gospel, and we separate for the master. And, and the good news is, is that when we separate ourselves for the master, it is filled with the gospel of good news that God is good for us, though we have been dirty, we have been defiled, we have been as that toothbrush used for multiple purposes, but God says, I can clean it, I can redeem him, I can use him now, and I can change his and her heart, so it's for me. And that's part of being a worker approved by God, is to say, I want to be used by God. I want to have the gospel in my heart, in my mind. To be used of God, to sing, to speak, to pray, to be used of God, to show someone the way. I long so much to feel the touch of his consuming fire. To be used of God is my desire. To say that is your prayer. This past weekend I went to a funeral of a dear friend of our family. Um, he died at uh, 83. Had cancer for 13 years and really never did the treatment much, died of a heart attack. He was our mechanic, uh, a member of Dad's church, and um, just was, God used him in my life uh, when I was 14. Um, I visited his, his place because cars needed worked on, and he was fascinating to uh, watch and to talk to. He talked extremely slow. Uh, but he talked to me when I was 14 as though I was not a believer. Everyone else thought I was. But he didn't talk to me like I was a believer. He talked to me as though I was not a believer. He shared the gospel with me. It shook me up. And I thought, you know, God, you've been letting in on secrets in people's li- and, and, and other people. And, and you're letting them know that I'm not a believer. And it shook me up. And it was part of what God used to let me know that I was not escaping from God, that there was going to be a judgment in my life, and as it stood, I was going to be separated from God and dying, going to hell. But what I come to find out later on is that he talked to everybody like that. If you went to John's and you got your car worked on, you would have been 
talked to about the gospel. He was talking about all that. He had the way of talking about anything and bringing it back to the Lord. He had an ability to do that. And so he shared the gospel day in, day out with anyone who would come his way. He never had to advertise, never had to promote. Everyone knew John. And he was always busy. And he was consequently always sharing. If you went by his house today off Rolls Road and saw his shop, you would still listen and hear 24 hours the Christian radio coming from his shop. Because it was always on and no one in the family has the strength to cut it off. The gospel, set apart for the master, useful, Prepare for every good work. Separate yourself from things that are devoid of the gospel to say that this is my heart, my life, my hope, my trust. It is capturing my imagination. It's what I want to talk about. This is part of our worship. We keep on reading. I I just want to bring something to your attention. Useful for the master of the house, ready for every good work. How do you do that? You listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and you obey. Devoid of the gospel, set yourself for the master. Listen, I want you to remember something. The more you listen to the Holy Spirit's voice, the more you will hear him. The more you listen to the Holy Spirit the more you will hear him. You will be prepared for every good work. The more you listen to other voices, the less you will hear the Holy Spirit. What do I mean by listen? Obey. Obey. So when you have the prompting of the Holy Spirit in your life and you think, well, what does it matter It costs too much if I obey obey him in that matter. What does it matter? Here's what matters. (laughs) Do you want God speaking to you? Do you want the one who created you, made you, know everything about you, that knows what is best in your life, who ultimately you will be before? Do you want to hear his voice in the midst of the fun of your life you think well no because it's a joy kill i don't want to listen to that but what about when times are bad when you're in the hospital and you're alone why is it we think that god will speak to us then when in our hearts we have rebellion against him just something to consider to be ready for every good work, useful for the master of the house, set apart as holy as to say, I will set myself apart from things devoid of the gospel, but I'm setting myself for the master. I want his voice. I want him talking to me. Because of who God is. I want to be approved before him of all that God has done. So we separate from teaching devoid of the gospel, and we separate ourselves for the master. Verse 22. He takes it to another level. We separate from selfish desires for God-centered desires. We separate from selfish desires for God-centered desires. Verse 22. So flee youthful passions. Flee youthful passions. And so just something for you to consider. I was studying a little bit in this passage and was talking about, commentators were talking about what was considered youthful. And, And in that time, first century, there was really two stages of life. There's young and there's old. And you're in either one. Uh, it was much later that we de- developed this middle-aged stage because we didn't want to be considered old. Uh, and so we, middle-aged. And, and so, <laughs> you know, multiply uh, your lifetimes too. You know, where are you at? Uh, I'm, I'm here at uh, 38, and so I'm realizing, wow, I'm no longer in youthful stage anymore. Uh, but I was glad to know in reading this that uh, Timothy was probably around 36 or 37 at this time. Uh, and so it, it, according to one of the early 
uh, church fathers, you were still considered youthful until age 40. <laughs> Sorry to give you a specific age there. Um, so here Timothy is. Uh, he's in this later 30s, and so youthful passions uh, flee these things. What is he talking about? He's not just talking about sensual desires uh, that, that we often think of when we, see, we use the word passions. He's talking about those desires that often come with er, uh, early age or youth. And let me just say it this way. The lust to have the final say. The lust to have the final say in your life. To say, I, I want to win my arguments. I remember in college, one of my roommates, we were good friends. But for some reason, we decided that we would debate whether or not it was better to rain and run in the rain or not. I had diagrams drawn to try to prove my case. And we were going back and forth. And it was just nothing more than just youthful ambition to have the last say. To say that we're right about something and that we won with logic and reason. The man who has to have the final say is captive to the lust of logic and is controlled by a burning passion to con- continually prove their own intellectual superiority. It can produce ruptured relationships and a false sense of spirituality. Instead, to cultivate humility and meekness. And he says to Timothy, in the midst of a context of churches where, where there is these debates going on about things that are not pertinent to the gospel, flee youthful passions, these desires to have yourself right and to win in all these debates. Learn humility, meekness. Isaiah 5.21 says, Woe unto those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. But it is certainly also still the, the sensual desires that come with youth. And he says, separate. And I'm just going to categorize these as selfish desires. Separate from selfish desires. Alexander Pope wrote, Vice is a monster such terrible mean that to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet seen too often familiar her face. We first endure, then pity, then embrace. It is when we see who God is and the holiness of who He is that once again becomes apparent to us our own selfish desires and how heinous they are. And the problem is we don't see it as that bad. But what is the counter to that? If we're going to flee these things, what is it we do? We Instead, we pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. This pursue. It's the word for follow hard. You have a a knack, a desire, you're going you're gonna to go after it. It is an ambition in your life. To say there is such a thing as a holy ambition. To, to be ambitious for the things of God. To have God-centered desires. I, I remember a uh, dog I used to walk, Roscoe, uh, was a 90-pound uh, monster of an animal. And most of the times, once he was okay with me carrying him, but if he ever saw a small mammal, man... It was bad. He'd pull my arms out of socket and just take it off. He pursued, followed hard after small mammals. And what Paul is saying is, what is it you pursue after? What is it that you are seeking? And so he lists out to Timothy, lists them out to us, follow hard after these things. And I would say these are God-centered desires. Righteousness. Faith. Love. And peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. It sounds familiar. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. In his first book, we looked at his first letter. We saw these as characteristics of people who are, are men of God. But as for you, O men of God, flee these things, pursue, same word, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, You see the similarity? Men of God, according to Paul, according to the Word of God, have been known with these characteristics, that there is a righteousness about them, not just a holiness before God that Jesus gives to them, but a a Holy Spirit working in them a characteristic, personalities, that is reflective of who Jesus is. 
faith. To trust in God and to be faithful in that. A continued steadfastness. Love. To put the needs of other people above their own. Peace. As I read these things, it reminds me of the Beatitudes. You see the similarities? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, bankrupt for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those uh, who mourn for their sin, or who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness sake. Blessed are those who are meek. And it goes on and talks about blessed are those at the end who are peacemakers. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart. You see the similarities here. It is to say, I want to walk with Christ. I want, when it talks about pure of heart, it is those who desire God. That's, they're holy. They're set apart. They see that as their purpose. And so it is descriptive of true believers among a mixed vessel group. And so it is descriptive of the behavior of those who call the Lord from a pure heart. These that are faithful, love, peaceful, righteousness. He says, be this. Pursue this. It's not to say, you know what, can you get your own way? I remember one time I was working in a church and someone took my phone. And it was the, a nice phone. It had all the gadgets and stuff on it. And I was getting ready to roll out of that church and she was about to roll in and, and an appointment. But I was a little irritated. You took my phone. Why? You know, and I started rationalizing. You know, I think it's right for me to talk to her. About her taking my, I mean, she didn't even ask permission. And I was rationalizing how it would be such a right thing to do. You know one of the things I found about being angry? There's always in your mind a right reason to be angry. If you think about it. There's always a right reason to be angry. When we look at it from our perspective. And it's not necessarily the answer of love. When I'm putting the needs of someone else. And when someone would ask me in that moment of anger, when I'm trying to get myself up in a, in a furry to, to talk to this young lady and set her straight, and someone would ask me, what's the loving thing to do at this point? Well, in my mind, the loving thing is set her straight. <laughs> Why? And that's where I got caught up. Why? Because I couldn't separate it from my rights. Love is to say, put the needs of someone else above your own peace along with those who call on the lord from a pure heart for the believer there is a holy accommodation that takes place among others and their faults it is not to say we're going to endorse sin but there is room for others to make mistakes among people who have been saved by grace. We pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And then verse 23. You have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. So. Though we make room for the mistakes of other people, it does not mean that we have to take part in quarrelsome behavior. Okay? And so we're, we're going to see that we're separating from selfish desires and we're separating from God-centered desires. But then, as we keep on reading here, it, it talks about what the Lord's servant must do. He says, foolish, ignorant. The word ignorant here is, is the word Stupid. I know it's one of the words we don't say, but that's the translation of this. It is ignorant, ignorant controversies. I think that uh, there's a man that we might look to in, in this, Dun Scotus, in uh, the 1200s. He was a, a theologian of the scholastic movement. And, uh, those who came after, some of the humanists and others who came after him, uh, would refer to this man and, and would categorize him as someone who would do obscure and irrelevant questions like, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Could God have become a cucumber instead of a human being? Could he undo the past by making a prostitute into a virgin? And so they started 
categorizing anyone that would ask these type questions and said that this is someone who follows Don Scotus and, and, and soon would become, this is someone who is a, a dunce man. And where you might recognize the word dunce. Got the dunce hat on in school. That wasn't done in my day, but maybe some of y'all had the dunce hats put on. The idea is that you're asking questions that are irrelevant, that are not pertinent to salvation. And, and it starts breeding and taking in people and you get sidetracked from the gospel. You get sidetracked about sharing the gospel with others and, and letting the gospel be applied in our life. And, and it takes you down areas that breeds these quarrels. In verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. So Paul gives them four positive qualities to help them to avoid being a quarrelsome person. How do you keep from being quarrelsome? Well, first, be kind to everyone. Second, able to teach, to instruct in the word of God. Third, patiently enduring evil patiently enduring evil and this is where you fight off for being resentful when you see resentment in your life be very careful when there is resentment in our hearts it is a a work of satan working in our life to twist us and it makes room for other things so we patiently endure evil. We, we refuse being resentful. We control irritability. Now, you know yourself how irritable we can all be. Right? If you don't know, ask your spouse or anyone else that may live with you. Okay? Uh, yeah, don't punch each other too much. All right. And, and so control by patiently enduring evil. And how does that relate to the gospel? It has everything to do with the gospel, doesn't it? The fact is that God has forgiven us, that He has given us grace, that He has endured our evil, that He was good to us though we were evil. To know how God is doing it in our life, that gives us the strength to deal with someone else. And we patiently endure evil. We, we are still, verse 25, correcting His opponents. Correcting the opponents, all right? Uh, and so these, again, these are people that are within the church uh, of Ephesus. And he says, you're going to have to correct them. You're going to have to teach them something different. And the word correcting has everything to do with child training. Conveys an authoritative stand with the opponents. But notice how it's done. With gentleness. With gentleness. So there's a tolerance in spirit, but yet without weakening the gospel. The manner of correction opens the door or shuts the door for repentance. Even with a baby, I mean, you know, even with a baby, a young baby, if you are teaching and they're, and they're at the age where you can teach them one way from another, and you tell a child, do not throw those peas. And you look them in the face the whole time and watch them. Don't throw those peas. You know what that child's going to do just because you're watching? But if you can just walk away, let the child surrender with some dignity, some grace, and just go about your business, it's amazing. Because it's not so adversarial anymore. And you walk away. Correct opponents with gentleness. If you're in the face and you say, you got, you better do this and you better do it right now. And here's all the reasons why you better do it. You know what the, what's happened? Now there is a fight between you and them. And the fight is not between you and them. You don't want them submitting to you. You don't want change to take place because of you. You want change to take place because of God. And to say, all right, this is the truth of God's word. I'm walking away. And you got you, you deal with God about it. I'm not in your face anymore about this. And you give them room. You correct opponents 
with gentleness. And that's why the manner of correction opens the door or shuts the door for repentance. To say, can you see that God is speaking and not me? And, and so let me help you see that it's God speaking. I'm just going to do this in a gentle way. If I've put a lot of force in it and I'm yelling and I'm screaming, guess what I'm trusting for the change? I'm trusting my ability to yell and scream. Uh, have you had folks yell and scream at you? Does that ever foster within your heart, man, I want to change? <laughs> because they're yelling and screaming at me. If anything, it sets you the other way, doesn't it? Because we're, we're rebels. God's kindness leads us to repentance. And so we're to demonstrate some of that same kindness, correcting with and gentleness. Don't expect them to humble before you. Don't expect that. If they ever humble themselves before you and say, I'm sorry, it's only done because they first humbled themselves before God. So don't expect them to humble themselves before you before they humble themselves before God. You pray for that in. Besides, you want them to hear God's voice, not yours. And why would God speak through godless manners? He can. He has. But for us who want to be good vessels, who want to be vessels honorable for the master, set apart and ready for every good work, then we do it in the way that God has instructed us, with love and gentleness, patiently enduring evil. So, for that end, so we keep on reading verse 25. He says, correct his opponents with gentleness, so that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil, after being captured by him to do his will. So, the third lesson in this, as we talk about being a good vessel, being separated from teaching the void of the gospel, set apart for the master, we're going to be set apart from selfish attitudes and desires, and set apart for God-centered desires. And then third, in worship of the Lord, and because we want to be a good workman, approved before God, in worship of who He is, we see sin as our only enemy. We see sin as our only enemy. Now, most of us don't have problems seeing sin as an enemy. The problem is the only word, isn't it? He is talking about these people in the church who he has said by name. These are these people. They're overthrowing the faith of some. Hearkening back to the story of Korah. If they don't change, if they don't depart from iniquity, God's going to bring judgment upon them. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for them. That perhaps maybe God would grant repentance in their life you have someone in your life that's turned from god far from god this is instructive to us what do you do when your child is walking away from god you're gentle you worship god you say i want to live my life approved before god and you go whole hearted in that way and to celebrate and share what god is doing in your life that if they're around you they're going to hear that because that's who you are you worship god but you pray for them you're praying that god's going to grant them repentance when the word or when there's a time and a situation that's right you just share simply simply what the word of god says and you walk away i said this is what the bible says you deal with it i'm praying you see, the power and, and the change that takes place in a person's life isn't necessarily going to be the words you say, but from, from God who said them. And so when someone turns in their heart, it's because God is working in their life. God is granting repentance in them. Repentance is a gift of God, but it still has to be received by a person, okay? Uh, so when, when someone repents, God is doing that work, changing their heart, but they have to receive it. Say, I, I want that. I desire that. So when you have people in your life that are far from God, you pray for them. And you pray exactly what Scripture says. Verse 25. God, would you grant them repentance? 
I'm going to try to be a vessel for you, set apart for you. I want you to use you. If you will use me, Lord, I will correct and I will do it gently and I will love them. I will endure what evil they put toward me. And I will do that because I know I've done evil toward you, God, and you gave me grace and you're saving me. And you are a glorious Lord. I want them to know how good you are. And I'm going to pray that they know repentance. Why does God have to do that? Because, well, 25, 26 tells us the reason. It says, first, God grants them repeating to lead them to a knowledge of truth, which the word knowledge of truth is, is a sobering up. Perhaps uh, your translation might say, come to their senses. When they are in a cycle of sin, then they have lost their mind. It breeds a cycle of stupidity. I'm going to go this direction, and I'm going to find out that I'm always disappointed at the end, so maybe I just need more of that. And I need more of that. And it's amazing to me how I can come across people, and I see them over Facebook, they went to high school with me, and they started drinking with high school, and now they're 38, 39, and they have a child or two, and they've got a house, and they have a job, but they still talk the same the way they did when they were sophomores in high school, and all it is is about the next drink, the next party. And I'm thinking, you know what? You would think that after 20 years of having to do the same thing, same thing, it's not right making you quite feel better that you would learn. But they've lost sense. They've lost sense. And so we're praying, God, help them to come to their senses. Sober them up. Why? Verse 26. That they may escape from the snare of the devil. You see, sin is the enemy. And through any sin is a foothold by which Satan can influence a person and entrap them and snare them and blind them to the truth of God. So that they will do his will. The will in question is Satan's will. He's been captured alive for that purpose. I've shared with you before when we looked at demonic possession, a study of that in the Gospel of Mark, how the only safe place is a person filled with the Spirit of God. It is the only safe place to escape from demonic influence in your life, in your heart. It is to be surrendered to the Spirit of God in your life. The two great enemies of our souls are sin and Satan. And sin is the worst because it provides the road by which Satan can work. If there's no sin in life, there's no road for Satan to work. And so sin is the worst. So God gives a lease to Satan. He's in control. But sometimes the lease allowed to Satan will include beating us up, roughing us up. Impacting us physically, even sometimes killing us. The way he did some saints in Smyrna in Revelation 2.20 or 2.10. But Satan cannot condemn us. He cannot rob us of eternal life. The only way he can do ultimate harm is by influencing us in sin, which is his aim. His aim. So his main business is to help us, assist us. Provoke us and confirm us and are bent in sinning. We see this in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 when he says, You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the prince of the power of the air. You need to understand that if a person is apart from Jesus Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit's work in their life, they are held captive to Satan. According to Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. And they walk according to Satan. So the sinning accords with his power. The only thing that will condemn us at the judgment day is unforgiven sin. Unforgiven sin. Not sickness. Not afflictions. Not persecutions. Not intimidations. Not ghosts or nightmares. And Satan knows that. Unforgiven sin. 
So his great focus is not primarily on how to scare Christians with weird phenomena, though they're weird and they're scary. No one likes to see the exorcist. We don't want to see that. But that's not his primary tactic to scare us with unusual phenomena and doors opening and closing. His main tactic is to corrupt us with worthless fads and evil thoughts. That's his tendency. Satan wants to catch us at a time when our faith is not firm, when we're vulnerable. It makes sense that the very thing Satan wants to destroy would also be the means of our resisting his efforts. Trusting God. That's why Peter says, resist him firm in your faith. It also says that why Ephesians 6, while Paul says that we are to have the shield of faith which can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So the way to thwart the devil is to strengthen the very thing that he's trying most to destroy. Our faith. Our faith. We can give place to Satan, according to Scripture, by sinning. And so here you have this passage where they are held captive. These were people that were in the church, according to 2 Timothy, but they're being used by Satan. See the example of Judas, who walked with Jesus, but he was captured to do the will of Satan, according to Luke chapter 22, verse 3. So we resist him in the faith. That's why you go back to the beginning of the chapter, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. To wake up each day and say, God, I need your grace. I need your Holy Spirit at work, moving, directing in my life. I want to hear your voice. I want to see you doing things in my life. Because left unto myself, I will be taken captive by Satan to do his will. And at the end of the day, you're either used by the master are used by Satan. And those are really the only two options we've got. That's why in Romans 6, he, he tells us, do not present yourselves as, uh, of members of sin to Satan, but present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. you got either or. So I, I wonder, at the end of the day, when you go to bed, which one are you used by? Whose will did you accomplish Satan's will or God's will? God's will will be marked by God-centered desires. Love, righteousness, faith, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Satan's will is going to be marked with quarrels and selfishness. That's the sad thing. All you got to do is just live for yourself. To do Satan's will. And that's pretty easy, isn't it? We wake up doing that. Unless there is an intentional act of God's grace in our life on a daily basis, we will default into a mode of pleasing ourselves and thus being captive. But here's the good news. As that Jesus came as our great rescuer and took captive death itself and sin and set us free that is the work of jesus christ i came across a story took place late october 2008 after more than eight years in captivity a 62 year old former congressman economics professor in columbia was ravaged by malaria and malnutrition His eyes had sunk into the sockets. His skin sagged under his ragged beard. He has had 98 months of separation from his wife and two sons and his work. And he's nearly shattered in spirit. He could either make a getaway or he could die. His name was Oscar Lizcano. And he was leaving. But he wasn't leaving alone. A 28-year-old rebel commander named Wilson Largo Arsazo was going to risk breaking freedom also. 
This man was one of the longest held hostages of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Columbia. It began in 2000 as the congressman was in a hamlet in the mountains of Columbia. And the rebels swept into the, the village with homemade martyrs, destroying poli- uh, police uh, stations, military barracks. And he came in with 30, this group came in with 30 plus rebels and surrounded this congressman and simply said to him, you are detained and you will be held until there is a prisoner of war. This time period was marked with endless days of walking in circles through jungles. Every once in a while, you'd hear messages that the family would put out on the radio, and they would send back messages to the family to ensure that he was still alive. On good days, he'd eat lentils and rice or monkey soup, which he would swallow by pinching his nose. Sometimes he was drinking water with salt to fight dehydration. One gorilla man would put a cooked mouse in his boot for him so he could eat. Often he was ill with dehydration, malnutrition, malaria, digestive tract infections. And it finally got to the point, eight years into this, would it have been easier for this band to just to kill him. To kill him. But this man that was part of the rebel camp came and approached him and he realized what was going to happen. And he was getting disenfranchised. And he said to him, you're going to die. He said, are you strong enough? Are you tough enough, old timer? And that night, with the sleeping men, the AK-47s around, they slipped out of camp. And for three days, traveling at night, eating center of palm trees, they escaped until they finally got to the end, or to where a military camp was. The old timer, or the fellow would ask him, old timer, are you going to make it? And when they saw this group, the congressman hugged the man and said, we're friends forever. You saved my life. Every day, he gives thanks to the person who had the courage, the value to leave with him. Their lives are now linked. He told the soldiers the name, the rescuing soldiers. He pointed across the water at Asazo, who reappeared on the shore. And he says, I can't abandon him. I just want to tell you that Jesus came, a man, in the camp of the rebel army against God. And we were held captive. And Jesus is simply saying, if you're not rescued, you will die. Come with me. And he rescued us. At the cost of the cross. And to ensure the resurrection. Or to ensure the escape he resurrected. And he sends his very spirit to us. We who now have been escaped out of the snare of Satan. We know what it's like. And we look back at him and we say to God. We are friends forever. I will never abandon you. Because Jesus never abandons us and when he says to us there's another person in that camp and they're held hostage far away from me i will go with you and we will go together and we will love them and we will pray for them for repentance and we will tolerate the evil they put toward us and we will show the kindness and gentleness and we will speak to them and correct them in the truth But when it's all said and done, I will bring them to myself.